0: Do you ever feel uh, a bit discouraged about the state of Christianity in our world, and maybe especially in this country? I know I do. It wasn't long ago that uh, Christianity was uh, very popular and very well thought of in our country. In fact, it was so popular that uh, the pollsters had a hard time getting accurate information about Christianity, because everybody ticked the box, you know, the little religion box on forums, Christian, everybody did. Whether they barely identified or went to church, it was like, yeah, I'm American, I breathe, I'm a Christian. But things have drastically uh, changed, haven't they? As our culture has grown more secular, especially in its views of sexuality and marriage and gender identity, our faith has fallen out of favor and has been framed as uh, narrow and bigoted, as patriarchal and oppressive, as outdated, uh, anti-science, kind of a big white man's club of control. All you have to do is watch the TV shows to get this feel. So no one is uh, just randomly ticking the box anymore. And those of us who are ticking the Christian box, it's kind of like being at the ATM where you might wanna cover, cover that up. Our American Christianized bubble has popped and kind of rained down on us and it's ugly. For the first time, we are feeling the reality of what the scriptures say, that we are strangers and aliens in this world, out of step. Even hated, as Jesus told his disciples, they hated me first, and they will hate you. It's intimidating. It's discouraging. And I don't know about you, but, but I can't help but kind of worry for my children. Will they be overwhelmed? Will they give up on their faith because it's just too hard? Will they just assimilate? And it's easy to kind of Hang your head and feel discouraged and defeated like we're losing the battle. But let me say, our text this morning is a real headlifter. It's so encouraging because it engages our minds with Joseph's family and their situation. it, It reminds us what God is doing through all that's going on. It kind of lifts our heads to that perspective where it's kind of like you're getting up and getting above the clouds and getting God's perspective of what's going on. I don't know if you ever had that experience. Maybe you went hiking up a mountain. It was terrible weather and rainy, and you finally broke through the clouds, and, and then it was sunny and beautiful. Oh, this is what's really happening. I've never had that except maybe flying, and I get above the clouds, and I'm like, yes, it's beautiful. And it's great when we get that perspective to then reflect back. Get that perspective on their situation and then reflect back on ours today. And the first thing that we're reminded of and kind of lifted up to see is the simple reality that God is keeping his promises of salvation. What we can't miss in this text is that it's reminding us that God is keeping his promises of salvation. You see, last week, if you've been with us through the Joseph series, you know that last week was the big reveal, Joseph finally revealed himself to his brothers, right? He had been kind of toying with them and, you know, putting that money in their sacks. And they're getting all guilty and full of fear. And and finally, he says, it's me. He can't take it any longer. He sees their, their guilt and their remorse. And he announces himself. And they realize this ruler of Egypt who has all the resources and provisions is their brother. And he's not angry He's forgiven them, and he loves them. And they're reconciled to him, and they're saved. But if you were paying attention last week, you notice that the text tells us it wasn't so much Joseph who was revealed, but who? Who was revealed? God was revealed. Joseph's the one who said it over and over again. If you look back at chapter 45, verse 5, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse seven, and God sent me before you to preserve you, for you a remnant on the earth. Verse eight, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. What Joseph didn't want them to miss in all of this is that God was working to preserve and to save his people. And the author here kind of sets it up and writes it in such a way that it's just got this triple repetition so we don't miss it. God is working his promise of salvation. And this revelation is expanded as we come into chapter 46. You see, Jacob, Joseph's father, patriarch of of the 12 sons of Israel, has just been informed that his favored son, the one that he thought had perished long ago, is actually alive. They go back, they tell their father, Joseph is alive, and he's, he's ruling over Egypt, and they say, you know, we sent all these wagons from Egypt, we can come back. The whole family can come down to Egypt and escape the famine and prosper. And he's dumbfounded, he's numb by the news, but he believes and so we have verse 1 of our text so israel that's jacob took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. that's just on the edge of the promised land and offered sacrifices to god and his father of his father isaac and god spoke to israel in visions of the night and said jacob jacob and he said here i am and then he said i am the god i am god the god of your father Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Now, you you can imagine that scene, that, that vision. God speaks to him, and he tells him, go down, don't be afraid, go to Egypt. And I will make you a great nation. Now that great nation language is supposed to grab our attention. What does that go back to? Does anybody know? Yeah, that's why I had Genesis 12. I'm going to flip back to it. Read. It goes back to the very promise to Abraham. Let me read it. Genesis, sorry, I need to get there myself, 12 verses 1 to 3. This is the promise to Abraham, the world has fallen into sin, it's hopeless, and then God comes to Abraham and says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There it is. And now we see in this moment, this very language. God wants Jacob and us to see that this is the great nation moment. God is keeping his promise. He is making good on what he said he would do. And, and, and in case we're missing that connection to, to Genesis chapter 12 there, look at the end of our text, the end of our section. So turn over to 47, verse 7. This is, this is uh, something that it might have been, I think it's easier for us to see than it, than it was for them, but it's amazing. It's amazing. Chapter 47, verse 7, then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. So Jacob's brought in, and note that it doesn't say he stood before Pharaoh. It says, and stood him. He's so old. They're, they're propping him up before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my Life, And they have not attained to the days and the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. He says, my days, 130 years, they're kind of short, he said. It's kind of a short life. And it's been evil. It's been hard. And if you know his life, right? The flight to Mesopotamia, his miseries at the hand of Laban, the rape of his daughter Dinah, his beloved Rachel's death, his eldest son's power-seeking incest, and, of course, the death of his favored son, as far as he knew. He'd been full of evil. And then, verse 10 and Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. What, is, what are we told twice in that section? That Jacob blessed Pharaoh. It's this crazy moment. This doddering old leathery shepherd from Nowheresville that can't even stand on his own, is propped up before the most powerful ruler of the world, Pharaoh. Pharaoh in all his majestic Egyptian glory. Pharaoh who is in the very process of giving Jacob's family the, the best pasture of his empire and providing them with all the sustenance, and it's literally blessing them. But what we're not to miss is that Jacob is blessing him why is that why aren't we to miss that well genesis 12 1 to 3 right make you great nations and i will bless you and i will bless those who bless you god is keeping his salvation promises not only to bless and multiply his people but to bless those who bless them and by the way you if you've been with us you know you've seen how Pharaoh's already been blessed. How Jacob coming into, I mean, Joseph coming into his household, right? It's been the greatest blessing. He's not only interpreted his dreams and and saved them from famine. He's blessed his whole household. So back to verse 5 of our text, chapter 46. Then Jacob sent out from Beersheba... The sons of Israel carried Jacob, set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, their wives in wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And then... We get this list of the names of all the descendants, which I spared the, the reader from struggling through. But there are some good ones. I, I couldn't help but notice, look at the end of verse 21, where you have the sons of uh, uh, Benjamin. It says, Bella, Betcher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, and then my favorites, Muppin, Huppin, and Ard. We've got some baby dedications coming up. (laughs) I I haven't done a Muppin and Huppin. Great twins' names, right? This Muppin and Huppin. And their little brother, Ard. (laughs) But I see, I think the specific listings and numberings of the family is given to show us, to remind us, that God has already been multiplying his offspring. In fact, they kind of say it adds up to 70. It doesn't seem to really add up to 70, but it's that rounded number of of completion. He's, He's making his complete people. And now he's bringing them, he's uniting them back together, the brothers with Joseph, and he's bringing them down to this place in Egypt and where he will multiply them beyond their wildest dreams, which is exactly what happens as we read on. I mean, how encouraging, how, how confirming. God is working. He's keeping his promises of salvation through this dysfunctional family. But here's the thing. Where's it going to happen? In Egypt. In a foreign land where they will be aliens and strangers in a hostile world that will be very hard. That's point two today. Point one, God is keeping his promises of salvation. Point two, in a place of hardship and suffering. See, as much as this Egyptian relocation in the moment will save them from famine and seems glorious... This is not the promised land. In fact, they're leaving the promised land to go here. And it's going to be hard. And I'm not simply referring to the fact that generations later, a pharaoh will not like them and enslave them. That's going to happen. I'm talking about right now, in the present, for them, it's going to be hard. What does this text tell us? They will be considered the moment they enter Into this new land. What will they be? Did you catch it in verse 34? Anybody want to shout it out? An abomination. Is the word. An abomination. Look that up. It means objects of disgust and hatred. Remember how in Joseph's household. The Egyptians wouldn't even eat with the brothers. Not at the same table. They were disgusted by them. This is going to be their life now. Pushed to the side, marginalized, looked down upon, shamed as religious ignorant weirdos that you don't want to get caught at the lunch table with. Unwelcome aliens and strangers. This is why I think Joseph is so cleverly diplomatic as he works to maneuver his family in the area, into the area of Goshen. Did you notice that in the text? You notice how it was like, hey, he brings them into Goshen, and then he says, we're gonna be in the land of Goshen, and he says, I'll tell Pharaoh we're gonna be in the land of Goshen. And when you guys go be fair, Pharaoh, explain to them who you are, and here, look at verse 33. When Pharaoh calls you, And says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. Right? Goshen, Goshen, Goshen. He's maneuvering, not just because that's a land of good pasture land, but because it's a land that's on the edge. It's away from the Egyptian population. He knows what's going to happen when they go there. He's trying to shield them. He's trying to protect them. Because he knows what's coming, how they'll be treated, how hard it will be. So the God-ordained context for their salvation and multiplication, that they may be a blessing to the nations... God's very vessel of salvation to the world. What's the context? It's one of hardship and struggle and alienation and suffering. He is working his plan in and through that situation. And I just want us to park on that for a moment. As we wrestle with the spiritual decline in our country and the increased hostility towards our faith, And we feel more and more out of place and alienated in our culture as persecution comes for just being Christian at at work and maybe at school, and as the wave of secularization feels overwhelming and the deterioration of Christianized norms of, of personhood and family structures and basic morality just escalates, we need to remember... It's not hopeless. It's not even a losing battle. God is at work. He is working his salvation plan. Keeping his salvation promises. This right now, what is happening, is the God-ordained context for him to work out his salvation plan in us and in this world. You know, in the New Testament suffering for Christians is not only predicted but promised. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, "I chose you out of this world and because you're out of this world this world will hate you." 2 Timothy 3:12 says all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4:12 says, "You should not be surprised by the suffering that comes as if something strange were happening." He says, "Guys, this, this is normal. You're Christians." 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 3.3 says, we are destined for affliction. And I'm just reading a few of them. But God is working in and through it. We just need to get above the clouds. And we need to see. We need to get above those hardships, that thing that's right in front of us, that it seems so bad. We're just like, what are you doing, Lord? And we need to see. Get his perspective. Do you know that he's actually multiplying his people right now in this world? You might say, oh, wait a minute, Carrie. I don't, I don't know. I mean that people are leaving the church in droves in Christianity. You know, the whole virus thing. I mean, now people are hardly even coming back. It's terrible. Well, the Chinese church has grown over the past 50 years from 4 million to over 100 million. The Korean church has grown exponentially. The numbers of Christians is rapidly expanding in Indonesia. The African church over the past 20 years have exploded from 700 million, exploded to 700 million. And by 2050, they think it's gonna be over a billion. God has grown his people all over the place. Even in Australia. I went to seminary down that little God forsaken country. <laughs> Got down there, I thought, man, this kind of, all they have is the Anglican church and the Anglican church is so dead. You know what? The Anglican church there, you cannot walk into a church in Sydney, an Anglican church and there uh, without hearing the gospel preached. It's amazing what's been happening there, what the Lord's been doing. And you know what all of these places kind of have in common? They're places where the church has been suffering and alienated. You see, God is going to use what's going on in America right now now to grow his people and work his salvation he already is point one god is keeping his promises of salvation point two in the midst of hardship and suffering and when we get this when we see his perspective do you know what this should mean for us courage that's what it should mean courage That's what God said to Jacob in his vision in 46, verse 3. Then God said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there, I will make you into a great nation. There, in the midst of all the hardship, I will be at work. We can face every day... No matter what comes, with fearlessness, when we see this. No matter what is right in front of us, we can kind of rise above and see what's really going on, believe God's word, and have courage. And do you know what really gives us assurance of this, that all this is that God is working His plan, that it's going to happen? that kind of solid thing that we can hold on to in the midst of all of this that this is true. Well, what was it for them? What was it for Joseph's brothers? What was it for Jacob? What they hold on to, the no, this is true. We we'll look at the end of chapter 45 with me, verse 28. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. He says it again. He knows he can go to Egypt because Joseph is alive. And then he says, when he finally meets him, in chapter 46, verse 29, Then Joseph prepared his chariots and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to him, now let me die since I have seen your face and I know that you are still alive. He can not only go down to Egypt and face all the hardships because Joseph is alive, he can go down to death because Joseph, is alive. The beloved son, the blameless son who was to be ruler of his people, but seemingly tragically died, leaving Jacob crushed in despair, is alive. That's point three today. Point one, God is keeping his promises to save his people and multiplying his people. Point two, in the midst of hardship and suffering. Point three, and we know it. Because Joseph, the son, the ruler-savior, lives. That changed everything for Jacob and his family. Joseph's miraculous life meant the promises of salvation given to Abraham were alive and well. And that God was working it all out. And look at how alive Joseph is in this text. He is, he is living and active and interceding for their salvation, working it all out. You can't miss it. Look at chapter 46 with me, and we'll just look at a few verses. Verse 29 again, then Joseph prepared his chariots and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. Verse 31, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh. Look at verse 47, uh, chapter 47, verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and brothers with their flocks and herds and all their possessions have come to the land of Canaan. Verse 5, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. Verse 7, then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. Verse 12, and Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his household with food according to the numbers of their dependents. He's alive. He's working out their salvation. And Jacob and the whole family are emboldened to face Egypt. This is what happened to the disciples in the New Testament, right? After Jesus died... They're hiding in the upper room, terrified. But then they met him risen. They knew he was alive, their ruler, savior. And suddenly they went out with boldness to the world, proclaiming the gospel fearlessly, ready to even face death. Just read the book of Acts. And I think this is one of the biggest applications of this text for us, this side of the cross, what I want to finish with. You see, before this moment, before Jacob met his son and realized God's son of promise was alive, how did Jacob speak about his impending death? Do you remember, he mentions his death quite a few times. I'm going to flip back here to chapter 37, verse 35. This is what he says, all his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son in mourning. Chapter 42, verse 38, this is what he says, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol going to go down to the place of the dead in mourning that's all he's got but now what does he say in verse 38 of chapter 46 or verse 30 this is what he says Israel said to Joseph now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive he's ready to die he's ready then die in peace, in hope. It reminds me of uh, Simeon when he saw baby Jesus and he held him in the temple. And what did he say? Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, for I have seen the consolation of Israel, I've seen my salvation. Luke chapter 2. So I want to say this morning, particularly. To the old folks in this church, like my parents, pushing that 130 mark, Or <laughs> you're not sure of uh, the days before you, you can be at peace. And maybe it's not age, maybe it's the mileage and the circumstances of your health that have you considering your days. Kind of like Jacob, thinking there's not much left, and maybe fretting a bit. It's easy to look out at our circumstances in Egypt, so to speak, and to worry for your kids and your grandkids. What's going to happen? Things are so bad and kind of cling on. I need to stay. I need to help them. Fretting or give up in despair. No. I know this sounds wrong, but you can die. Mom and dad. <laughs> Not that I want you to die. I want you to stay around a long time. But you can. We all can. We can die in peace. We can all face this world right now with boldness. And we can face death with peace. Whenever it may come. Because our God, our, his beloved son, our ruler, our Savior, our very brother, is alive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May we believe it. May we trust your promises of salvation that you've wrought in your Son by raising him back to life. That he's living and active, that you're making your people in the midst of all the hardship and suffering, and you're bringing us home. Thank you, Lord. In your son's name, amen.